This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, I think we've been here before. What what do you mean? I mean, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it feels like this might be a universe that we visited at some point in the recent past. Mm, you, You might be onto something here. We are going to be talking about a multiverse here and... There's going to be, you know, lots of jumping between different universes, different selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I'm getting that familiar. deja vu now, too, as well. Listeners, we are not going to be reviewing everything, everywhere, all at once. That was a film that we reviewed in the alternate universe of Seeing and Believing, episode 327. Here in episode 332, we're going to be talking about another movie about multiverses, Marvel Disney's new Doctor Strange adventure, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Say that five times fast. Not a chance. And then after that, we will be taking a little bit of a jump into another universe, that of the French New Wave and Francois Truffaut's movie Jules and Jim, which we uh, took the opportunity to discuss with special guest Elijah Davidson. Yeah, Elijah's going to be sharing his enthusiasm for Jules and Jim with us, as well as his exciting new film writing project, Come and See. Definitely stick around to learn more about that. It's going to be a barn burner for sure. All that's coming up on this episode of Seeing and Believing. Every night, I dream the same dream. begins. I did what I had to do. To protect our world. You cannot control everything, Strange. You opened the doorway between universes. And we don't know who or what will walk through it. Wanda. What do you know about the multiverse? Viz had his theories. He believed it was dangerous. He was right. Yes, we're here on episode 332 of Seeing and Believing. Sadly, there are no hot dog fingers in this episode. That was everything, everywhere, all at once. So, yeah. Yeah. No hot dog fingers, no fanny pack fights with, uh, I don't know, goldfish like gravel thrown in there. Like no no everything um, bagels either, which I find personally kind okay. of unfortunate. We're, we're, we're going to have to stop talking about everything everywhere all at once again because <laughs> that's just going to make me want to watch that movie again. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can't stop recording and, and do that. So uh, sorry, listeners, if you were jonesing for that as well you know, come back another time, maybe another alternate universe. Mm -hmm. But uh, we are going to be talking about the new Doctor Strange movie here in the first segment. Our talk with Elijah Davidson about Jules and Jim is coming up, of course. But we got to stop off for 
probably the biggest release of of the month for sure, if not the entire season. Speak for yourself. I'm looking forward to Top Gun at the end of the month. <laughs> Touche. The, this latest entry, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, picks up where the last Spider-Man movie and the Disney Plus series WandaVision left off. Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange, fresh off the interdimensional shenanigans of Spider-Man No Way Home, and wondering what's next, finds himself unexpectedly in care of a teenager named America Chavez, who possesses the unique ability to physically travel between dimensions. This ability also makes her very interesting to Elizabeth Olsen's Scarlet Witch, who is desperate to be united with the children she created during the events of WandaVision. Unfortunately, she might be a little too desperate to find a way to make use of America Chavez's powers, which leads to a pan-dimensional chase in which Doctor Strange encounters corrupting dark magic, alternate selves, and new characters. Well, new to him, anyway. So, Sarah, this is a Doctor Strange movie, mm -hmm. which means that it's billing itself on mind-bending visuals and complex weirdness, or maybe the term is weird complexity. And Disney brought Sam Raimi of Spider-Man, of the original Spider-Man trilogy fame. Mm -hmm. uh, they brought him on board to deliver the goods in those areas. So my question for you is, does Doctor Strange 2 live up to the madness and the promise of its premise. Oh man, I mean, I wish it did. I think it I think it gets close in a couple of places. Um I would have loved a little bit more of the Sam Raimi of it all to start to shine through a little bit. Like there's bits and pieces, there's definitely flashes of like his direction and kind of his visual sensibility that pop up here and there, but it still kind of felt like it was trapped a little bit in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and not necessarily being willing to branch out into all of these other like multiverse locations. I don't know, like I kind of would love it if the MCU house style was a little bit less of like a cohesive unit because it, it kind of feels like all of these auteur directors start directing a movie for the MCU and then they kind of get constrained by whatever it is that Disney wants to do with their properties. I don't know if that's the sense that you get, but that's that's kind of how I've felt about it. So I, I think this movie, and it might have, this quality might have been present in other MCU movies, but this one is kind of the movie where it was really crystallized for me. The disconnect between the uh, the Sam Raimi style, you know, the, the idiosyncratic, very uh, well-established style that we know and love, you know, Dutch tilts, you know, very quick zooms, mm -hmm. um, you know, all sorts of visual inventiveness. They are present, like it's not totally homogenized here. We do get mm -hmm. those moments and those moments in this film are uh, the highlights of the entire movie. Oh, yeah. And those are almost like oases in the desert for <laughs> what a lot of the other uh, visuals amount to, which the, the cinematography feels very flat. The, the CGI is uh, abundant. And those parts of the movie feel very much like, very, very anonymous, I guess. And that's kind of where the way I overall felt about this film is it felt like it kind of lurched between being super interesting mm -hmm. and being very anonymous, uh, franchise bound, boilerplate filmmaking. And, you know, longtime listeners know I love me some Sam Raimi Spider Man 2. I think I still. Might call that the best superhero film ever made. Love it a lot. 
Um, and I was really hoping that this would be the film where I kind of, it could be the Marvel movie that would teach me to love again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it did not teach me to love again. And mm. I think a lot of it has to do with, with that. It just, it feels very uneven where it kind of, it's being pulled in a lot of different directions. The parts where Sam Raimi gets to kind of let himself out to play a little bit stylistically are fun. Mm -hmm. But overall, it just, there's not a whole lot here that held my interest. And it kind of made me wonder if for me, the MCU is kind of becoming a fans only proposition. I mean, that kind of feels like that's been the case for quite some time because you kind of have to be caught up with the previous, what, 25, 26 movies now at this point. I've lost count. Plus the Disney Plus TV shows, like a big significant part of the plot, like you'd mentioned in the synopsis at the top, um, really hinges on something that happens in a Disney Plus limited series. And if you haven't seen that, you're probably a little bit lost with the plot of what on earth is going on here. Like, I'm sure it's possible to pick up on what's going on based on context clues and the fact that it's a Marvel movie and a superhero movie and it kind of has to follow like three plot, like three point plot structure. But at the same time, I don't know, like if if you're not a dedicated MCU person, and I distinguish these from people who are dedicated comic book people, if you're not a dedicated MCU person, I don't fully know if you're going to get too much out of it other than those flourishes and flashes of Sam Raimi that are kind of interspersed within the rest of the movie. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is the point of the of the segment, listeners. We'll we'll stress this is going to be mostly spoiler free. We're not going to give away any major plot developments, but you know we kind of have to talk a little bit about. I think we have to talk about Scarlet Witch. Yes. Um, she is in some ways the main character of this film in that she kind of feels like she has an emotional arc mm -hmm. of of some sort, whereas Doctor Strange. He kind of has one. It's it's maybe he has one, but it's just so much less interesting that it's it's easy to forget that he's the main he's the star of the show and really want to be more interested in well what's going on with Scarlet Witch. Well, and I mean, my beef with that is that Scarlet Witch's arc happens like maybe in the first five ten minutes of the movie, and then she's kind of stays static at that same register for the rest of the film. So. There is character development, but it's sort of front-loaded, and a lot of it feels like at the same time it also kind of happened off-screen. So, Kevin, I kind of want to propose a grand unified theory of the okay. Marvel Cinematic Universe and why structurally a lot of it doesn't work for me, even though I really want it to. And it's that a lot of the important character work happens in between installations. I don't think that there's going to be much room for dynamic character development within each of these movies. Usually a movie will end and then the next movie will begin and you get about five minutes of exposition and wh what the character has been up to in between movie A and movie B. And then they're kind of thrown into a lot of action sequences throughout the middle of the film. And then maybe they learn a lesson or maybe they learn something about themselves or they learn an additional development that's going to catapult them off into additional adventures in movie C later on down the line, whenever that's going to be. But the vast majority of that character development just doesn't happen on screen. I call this my Bucky Barnes theory because the character of Bucky Barnes, aka the Winter Soldier, all of the interesting stuff that happens to him in these movies happens off screen. Like you find out 
at, at some point in the middle of Captain America, the original one, like he's gone. You find out in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, oh, no, wait, he's back. And he's been a super secret Russian spy for the last 60 years. And then at the end of that movie, like he starts to understand who it is that he used to be. And then at some point in between some of the other Captain America movies, like he comes to terms with who he is as a person and you never actually really see any of that on screen. And I find that deeply frustrating because that's the hard character work that I want to watch. I want to watch someone grappling with who they are and what they are in the universe. And I just don't think that you get that in these movies. I mean, I when when you shared that with me after the Doctor Strange screening, it kind of it opened up a lot of uh, my own struggles with the MCU, I guess, in, in terms of just why they often seem competent but never fully fulfilling. And I think that has a lot to do with it. At the same time, it does seem like they are trying to do something here with Scarlet Witch. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they're successful with it, but the basic, her basic story arc in this film is that she starts with a goal. She wants to be reunited with the uh, the children that she dreamed for herself. I, I haven't seen WandaVision, so I, I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was trying to get it all from context clues, but uh, she she has these children that that were that she created. Mm-hmm. Um, they're obviously not with her now. Correct. Um, but she wants to be reunited with them because she knows that because she dreams of them, they exist in other universes. She just has to find a way to get to them. Mm-hmm. The path that she takes to realize that goal leads her to some pretty dark places. Mm-hmm. So she does change in that she kind of, you know, we, we know her as an Avenger at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. We find out that there's she's not just a squeaky clean superhero over the course of the the rest of the movie and then she does have some sort of realization about herself and about what she's been doing at the end of the film Mm -hmm. the problem is i think that we don't really see where that change where there's no gradient i guess it's it's um very much I want this thing, so I'm going to do a bunch of bad things mm-hmm. to achieve that goal, and then I'm going to realize I shouldn't do bad things. But the intensity of the the swings between those two, those three points that I mentioned, mm-hmm. are so wild that it's kind of it's hard to buy it as a coherent, as, as something that a a coherent, understandable human character would uh, a path that that person would travel yeah and again you know it's it's disappointing because it would be interesting to see somebody who's so devoted to being reunited with their family that they might do some things that they wouldn't be proud of Mm -hmm. but i don't think this film really finesses that in any way it's i mean you describing that character arc makes me think like it's a very compelling story if you can tell that right and i think part of the problem is that it's just in basically that one register of i'm going to do a bunch of bad things in order (laughs) to get what i want where it does work for me is a little bit less on like the pathos side of things and more on the scary side of things like this is a sam raimi movie he does get to touch a little bit into um, elements of horror, which I appreciated. 
I kind of would have liked a little bit more horror, honestly. But again, like there's only so far that you can go in a PG-13 movie. It goes pretty far as it is. Like this is by far the most violent mm. uh, or at least most intense, like in ter- just in terms of what we see happen on screen. Yeah, I mean, okay. The intensity of some of the stuff, yes, it does get pretty gross. I think I would have liked the intensity of the frightening like atmosphere a little bit more to be sustained like I, I didn't fully get that feeling of something bad is happening and I am scared for the characters on screen very much because I knew that they were going to get out of it because eh, it's it's an MCU movie somebody's going to survive and carry on for the next installation of whatever MCU movie there is I don't know like I, I did not feel like there was a visceral sense of danger for the vast majority of these characters on screen and I think that's what I would have liked was would have been to be genuinely afraid for some of these characters. I, I think that's maybe touching back on what I said about this feeling like it, it kind of lurches between Sam Raimi doing his thing and it being much more of a, a, an anonymous product because mm-hmm. those horror movie sequences that you mentioned, I would, I, there, I mean, there's a scene where uh, Doctor Strange, America Chavez, and another character are being pursued down a hallway yes. by uh, by an antagonist, mm-hmm. and it's basically a, it, it's it's a slasher movie. Like that could be the, the antagonist could be uh, Leatherface or a horde of zombies, and it, the cinematic grammar would be exactly identical, and that's very compelling to see in a in a Marvel movie. Mm. Uh, you know, in isolation, but when it's bookended by, you know, the usual, you know, wisecracks and characters shooting lasers at each other that just sort of, you know, they, they have to grunt really hard to try. It, they're, they're, the, the sense of physical stakes is inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And because of that inconsistency, it's hard for the movie to maintain a consistent atmosphere of why should I care about this moment that I'm seeing in front of me? right this second and and the answer at least i came to is that i i I really can care about it i can kind of enjoy the easter eggs Mm -hmm. but i don't get a meal out of it yeah yeah i mean not every movie has to be a three-course meal i guess but yeah i don't know that that sequence with the tunnel chase actually did work for me but on a slightly different level and it's because i recognized the tunnel looks a little bit like a scene from one of my all-time favorite movies, Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. I am not making this oh, up. Okay. There okay. is a sequence yeah, yeah. where the characters have to go through a tunnel. It's a dark, like, dripping tunnel that's sort of underwater. And uh, the location is referred to as the meat grinder within that movie, and everybody is terrified to just go through it. Um I kind of got a little bit of that atmosphere, but maybe it was just the shape of the set that it was in. I don't know if it was an intentional callback or reference. I kind of doubt it, but it did kind of like ping the little nerd center in my brain that said, this is something that you recognize and this is something that you like. So maybe you'll draw some additional like meaning out of it. Well, I, I think that's kind of the the fuel that the movie runs on throughout mm-hmm. its its running time is just here's a character that comic book fans would recognize. Here's a situation that comic book fans would recognize. Here's mm-hmm. a tease of a possible future story that you might be excited about. And you get kind of that little that little fizz, that little ping in your nerd brain, uh as I say as a nerd, uh <laughs> that that is you know, it's pleasurable in the moment, but after the ping's gone, there's no real echo or resonance at all it doesn't feel like it's building on that ping and i think that's where my dissatisfaction 
comes from is it's just recognition for the sake of recognition. It's not necessarily recognition and we're going to build a compelling story out of it. I mean, yeah, there are going to be additional installations in the MCU after this. So maybe you could say that that plot that's building is compelling. Maybe. I don't find it particularly compelling, but that's also because this isn't necessarily a world or a bunch of characters that I'm all that invested in. And I feel kind of bad for saying that because I do genuinely like Doctor Strange as a character. Hmm. Yeah. I want to get your thoughts on the way that this film approaches power. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, for for all of our, our, our nitpicks about, you know, the, the filmmaking or the storytelling or this movie's place in the overall fabric of the MCU and the grand design, it does have some thematic work that it's doing in terms of uh, power, uh, what it's good for, whether it is good in itself, mm-hmm. um, and how the various characters make use of power or aspire to make use of it. So I want to get your thoughts on on the work that this film is doing because I do think it's potentially interesting. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) It feels like a very dualistic look at the world. Like there is good power and there is bad power. And then there is the choice to wield it or to not wield it, essentially. Like it feels like a very binary way of looking at things, which is something that I don't find too particularly interesting. What I find a little bit more interesting is this idea of um, there, there is the possibility for a ton of different solutions to the same problem. And I don't think that this movie, like for a movie that is about the plurality of experience across a ton of different multiverses, this movie is very obsessed with the singular viewpoint of whoever the one most powerful person within all of those multiverses is. And that kind of boils down the complexity of the situation to just, is this person going to use power for good or are they going to use power for bad? And that, I don't know, like, I I don't find that question particularly interesting because it does feel so binary. So I don't know, like, is is that something that you were struggling with while you were watching the movie or am I I I on base? As, so I I mentioned earlier that I'm a nerd and the specific breed of nerd that I am is a Lord of the Rings nerd. Mm, I I mm -hmm. love Lord of the Rings. And one reason that I found it so enduringly fascinating is it's, well, one of the many reasons, is that its vision of of power and what it means to be powerful and the way that power acts upon various individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the One Ring is just such a potent symbol and the way the various characters regard it and either desire it or renounce it mm-hmm. says a lot not just about the ring, but also about who they are as people and, and just kind of the moral vision that Tolkien has built into this world. Mm-hmm. With Doctor Strange, there is kind of a one ring type object. There's this thing called the Darkhold. It's a it's a book of dark magic. Mm-hmm. And various characters uh, make use of it or are warned against making use of it because the power within that book will will corrupt them or exact some sort of a toll from them. Which again, I'm you know, I'm all on board with with that kind of uh, that kind of storytelling, I don't think that it ever really does anything with that idea, though, mm-hmm. because it, it doesn't really, I guess, the Darkhold never really, without spoiling too much, the Darkhold doesn't really back up its threats consistently. Yeah. And I think that's that's disappointing, especially because in a story about kind of a multiverse 
uh, with so many different versions of a Doctor Strange who uh, might either desire to use the Darkhold or does not want to use the Darkhold and various other characters as well. It kind of just seems like the Darkhold only means... It, it, do, it doesn't end up... Its influence doesn't really make itself felt in the way that it could in a story of that scope. It means the same thing in every single universe. Just like Doctor Strange as a character kind of means the same thing in every single universe as well. Like, again, it's it's there's so many different possibilities for where you could take that story, but they all seem to end at the exact same point. And I'm not sure that I like the way that that goes, because there's a, there's a level of fatalism to that, I think, that I, I don't know that I agree with. It's it feels spiritually hollow to me because, yeah. you know, as as Christians, obviously there is there is one person mm -hmm. who wields power and can be counted on to wield it in a perfectly just way, perfectly holy way, and a perfectly loving way, mm -hmm. um, and that's both comforting. Um, it, it inspires fear, and it also opens the possibility of the fact that uh, while God wields power perfectly. Other people can wield power and they can wield it imperfectly. Mm -hmm. And I watch a movie like Doctor Strange and I feel like, does God exist in this universe? And if so, what in what ways would that God be contrasted against the godlike powers of these various characters? Mm. What What is the difference between a Doctor Strange with ultimate power and a God with ultimate power in the universe of the MCU? I don't know that the they have an, a satisfying answer to that question. Not that they necessarily have to, but I feel like when you open the possibility of infinite dimensions and ultimate power and the corrupting possibilities in power, I feel like you kind of need to touch on that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> what does ultimate power mean in a world without God? <laughs> oh man, asking the heavy questions here. <laughs> <laughs> we we get into it in, in you know MCU. It brings out the deep questions. What can what can we say? And and to quote Captain America, there's only one God, and I don't think he dresses like that either. I guess that's true. There there is a specifically Judeo-Christian kind of. <laughs> reference <laughs> in the mcu it is canon I yeah guess. yeah although um who can say if that god actually exists within the mcu even though captain america believes in him hmm. maybe i don't know who can say listeners we'd be interested in your thoughts on the the deep philosophy contained herein that is maybe where we're going to to end things before we get too far into the weeds i agree <laughs> Uh, but that was our review of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. We went pretty far afield, but that seems kind of fitting given the subject matter. Uh, it is out this weekend, so obviously a lot of you are probably going to be seeing it this weekend. We'd love to hear your take on on this film uh, over Twitter or on email. You can tweet us at cbelievepod or email your thoughts to us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Like we said, this is a big release, so I'm sure that... Lots of people are going to be making the journey to the theaters to uh, to check it out. So we'd love to hear about that. Don't go anywhere. We're going to share some listener feedback and then jump into Jules and Jim with Elijah Davidson. Can't wait. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there in Seeing and Believing Land, keeping the conversation about movies going. Uh, so last week, Sarah, we talked, we had a Nick Cage extravaganza. Oh, we did. Did we ever? <laughs> and uh, I feel like, you know, there... When Nick Cage is involved, it's going to always be some kind of extravaganza. So, you know, that's as is fitting. We had to rise to the occasion, I think. And I yeah. feel like we did pretty well for ourselves. I mean, I don't even know if what I said during our review of Face Off made any sense, but I had fun just spouting <laughs> off about it. Uh, but other listeners actually listened to the episode and uh, had some thoughts about it. They sure did. So Lindsay Dunn wrote in... Um, and said, uh, just finished listening to your Massive Talent and Face Off double feature podcast. I really enjoyed Massive Talent and thought the interaction between Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage was endearing. I hadn't seen Face Off in 20 years and it's time for a rewatch. I wonder how I would feel about it now. The film has a special place in my life story. In 1997, myself and a dozen other Ball State Cardinals did a study abroad in Oxford. And as a movie buff, I talked many of the fellow students in going to the movie theater during off time. Only the selection was very limited. Pretty much the time we were there, only a few movies played at a time, so we saw both of them multiple times. One of those movies was The Full Monty. The other was Face Off. I don't really think I was aware of who Nicolas Cage was, to be honest, but the movie is emblazoned on my soul as essential viewing. So thank you for reviewing it. So, Kevin, I think you have a fellow face-off fan. <laughs> emblazoned on my soul is a very fitting phrase mm -hmm. to use a face-off, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it might be emblazoned on mine, too. So I don't know. Right? Yeah. You, you, you watch it and you think, oh, it's okay. Mm -hmm. But then you think about it, and you think about it, and you too. The will. doves are coming. <laughs> we may have to have another standoff over it at some point. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll have a, a reevaluation segment where we, we go back and revisit some of these watch list picks. Talk about why Sarah is wrong about things. <laughs> I, you know, I'm up for that as well. Uh, we also heard uh, back about uh, our review of The Northman a couple weeks back. Uh, listener Ron Sturry, longtime listener and patron Ron Sturry, had the chance to catch up with our review of The Northman, and you know he had some he had some issues with mm. with our take on it, and he he challenged us a little bit, and I, I thought it was interesting uh, to read his thoughts uh, via email, and I wanted to share some of that with you all. Uh, he writes in part. I do not feel the voyeuristic need to watch more of it, i.e. the violence in The Northman. There are so many good movies out there, like Rear Window, thanks for that. Why would I waste my too few years of life I have left by watching a film like that? I'm happy that Sarah, at least, expressed some reservations about the torture and suffering depicted in films. Do you think we are desensitizing our populace to such unchristian and inhumane treatment by torture porn films like the Saw series or The Northman? A good subject for you to address sometime. Anyway, that's my two cents. So Ron touches on something that, you know, we've wrestled with from time to time on seeing and believing, um, which is the, you know, the Christian's responsibility with extreme content in movies. That's, mm -hmm. I think, maybe even our very first episode, we had Josh Larson on as a guest, and we sprung that question on him, totally unaware. I don't I don't know if he remembers this, but... Uh, Incredible. He, we, we did not tell him we were going to ask him about this, and we did, and he had a very good answer on it. Um, but it needless to say, it's something that we've kind of gone back and forth on over the course of the show. And uh, this is maybe going to be your trial by fire, Sarah. Uh, what do you think of, of, of Ron's thoughts? Uh, 
maybe about the Northmen specifically or just about extreme violence in film in general? I think it's an incredibly good question. And it's honestly one that I wrestle with quite a bit as well, because I do feel like there are certain movies that I gravitate towards that are incredibly violent and like really hard to watch. I am a lover of the alien movies. I love every single one of them. And there's some difficult stuff that's shown on the screen that like you can't necessarily ever really forget about. And so I think our responsibility as viewers is to be able to know and understand like the weight of what's happening on screen. And then also to understand like that there is actually evil out there in the world as well. And that depiction doesn't necessarily mean endorsement. I think that there there is a responsibility of the filmmaker and then also the responsibility of the viewer to be discerning about what it is that they're depicting and how they're depicting it, whether it's actual glorification or just something that is horrifying that their characters have to deal with. And then also on the viewer's part, to be understanding about what maybe their limits are and, and what it is that they want to actually like put into, I don't know, their their mind. Does that make sense? That that makes sense. And I mean it's a it's a good answer. And I think that touches on my evolving take on the same subject matter, which when you talk about a filmmaker needing to recognize the existence of certain realities in the world Mm -hmm. and reckon with the responsibilities they have in portraying those things on screen. Um, For me, it comes down to a lot of what spiritual vision or moral vision is being implicitly or explicitly kind of shown on screen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Ron brought up uh, the Saw movies and the Northmen kind of in the same sentence and linking them. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I would push back on that mostly because I think they're very different in the ways that they use violence. They're both extremely, like the, the Saw films are extremely violent. The Northman is extremely violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think where the Saw films tends to view humans as meat, mm. as basically marionettes that get put through the ringer, maybe sometimes literally, for the, the audience's viewing enjoyment, that's the entire point of those films is to see how inventively can a person, you know, ostensibly built in the image of God, mm-hmm. uh, how you know how outrageously can we brutalize them, mm-hmm. um, and what how enjoyable can we make that uh, in a prurient way for the audience? Mm-hmm. And I think that stands in stark contrast to The Northman, which is also very matter of fact about its extreme violence, mm-hmm. but the the effect of it is all different. It's not there for our delectation, I guess. It definitely doesn't feel like it's necessarily reveling in the violence. I think it does revel in some of the action sometimes. Like there is a shot that I'm thinking of specifically fairly early on where Amleth catches a spear in midair and then flips it around and throws it back at the person who threw it at him. And I think that the camera does revel in that like feat of prowess and in Amleth's ability to get through a battlefield. But I don't think that it's reveling in the death and destruction that he's kind of sowing in his wake. Um, well, that, a- that, that shot is immediately followed by him sacking a town and, you know, killing innocent people yeah yeah. and and you hear a lot of of weeping and wailing and 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 gnashing of teeth um but i think that the film is pretty smart about 
understanding the toll that this violence takes both on the people who perpetrate it and then also on everybody that it is perpetrated on. And I also think that the Northman is extremely judicious about what it does and does not show. I, for one, really appreciated that it did not really show any sexual violence at all. Um, there is an understanding that these Vikings are pillaging and plundering and that there are going to be things that they do as they pillage and plunder and they do not show any of that violence against women in particular. They, it does recognize that that's happened, but it isn't something that is going to show that because I think the movie wisely understood that depiction of that could end up falling a little bit too close and in, into the reveling in that kind of pain titillating the, the yeah audience. which which is something that i for one am really glad that they decided not to show because it's not necessary you understand what is happening to these characters and you don't need to actually see it in order to understand the full weight of that yeah and you know i for me personally and and this is something that is maybe a part of the a, a dimension of it as well it's just they're it's important. Discernment is also important. Yes. Um, and for me, while I watched Northman, there was there's a meaning there to me. When, when I watched it, I felt transported. And I felt transported in a way that helped me understand the world just a little bit better mm-hmm. through through some of the brutality even in terms of just seeing how completely alien the past can be. Mm-hmm. And yet they aren't aliens. They are human beings. Mm-hmm. And in, in that way, the, the movie kind of reflects on the world and makes it grow a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. Somebody who doesn't find that meaning, it though, would find it a very tough sit and maybe even harmful to the way they view people and um, and the way they just kind of move through the world. And I think that's that's something too, is that, you know, maybe the Northmen is lawful, but it may not be beneficial and mm-hmm. that's okay too. Yeah. Um, so, and, and sounds like that might might be where, where Ron is and I, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, but it's like, uh, you know, it's part of the conversation. Yeah, it is. And, and the eternal question, I think that we're going to keep wrestling with for yeah. the rest of our lives probably. <laughs> Probably. And, it, you know, it's a fun one to wrestle with. That's why we're critics, I guess. Mm-hmm. Ron, thanks a lot for uh, writing to us and, and sharing your thoughts so honestly. Yes. Uh, we appreciate, uh, you know, the, the challenge to, to, to defend ourselves a little bit. That's, that's always helpful. And uh, we hope that you, even if you aren't really into the Northmen, we hope that maybe at least hearing our thoughts on it can be beneficial in some way to you mm-hmm. uh, and to all of our listeners and to everyone else out there who's listening. Um, I mean, these, these kinds of questions are basically what we live for. Mm-hmm. So if you uh, have other thoughts about the Northmen or about Nicolas Cage or about movies in general, you know, this is why we invite you to, to write in is because we honestly do love hearing from you and thinking and talking about what you have to share. So again, uh, you can tweet us or email us. Keep those thoughts coming. We love to hear them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
All right, we're going to go to the watch list segment of the show. Normally, when we do the watch list, one host picks a movie that the other host has never seen. But Kevin, we've got a special guest on tonight um, who has picked our movie for us. So instead of you or me choosing a movie that the other has seen, we've actually seen a movie that neither of us have seen before this week, which I'm really excited about. Um, We watched Jules and Jim. Uh, directed by Francois Truffaut in 1964. Um, And this was picked for us by our guest Elijah Davidson, who is a writer living in California and the author and editor of multiple books on faith and film. I can attest to that because he actually edited my own book, Becoming Alien. Um, And he has co-hosted the Brem Film Initiative at Fuller Seminary since 2011. So Elijah, welcome to Seeing and Believing. Yeah, thanks so much. We're so happy to have you here. Um, So normally what we do um, on this segment is one of us will give a synopsis and then um, we'll ask the person who picked the movie like what they find special about it. So I'm going to give a quick synopsis of Jules and Jim for any listeners who may not necessarily have seen the movie before. Um, And then we'll go to you. So Jules and Jim. In the carefree days before World War I, introverted Austrian author Jules, played by Oscar Werner, strikes up a friendship with the exuberant Frenchman Jim, played by Henri Serre. Both men fall for the impulsive and beautiful Catherine, played by Jean Moreau, but it's Jules who wins her hand. After the war, Jim visits Jules, Catherine, and their daughter in their Austrian home and discovers not only that his feelings for Catherine are unchanged, they are reciprocated. So, um, Elijah, you picked this movie partly because it's part of your Come and See project, which we're going to be talking about a little bit later in the segment. But I'm curious to know what about Jules and Jim struck you and what made you want to include it in the list of devotions that are in Come and See? It's the second part of that question first. Uh, the second part of that question about why I chose to include it um, in this collection uh, is that I didn't choose to include it in this collection. Huh. Um, I, um, I, what, the way that I came to the list of films in Come and See is I took a bunch of lists um, of the, you know, quote, greatest films of all time, mm. and I cross-referenced them, um, about nine or ten lists or so from the past, like, 60 years, um, and cross-referenced them to find out what were the most common films that everyone said, everyone sort of, you know, said, these are the best films ever made. Um, And so Jules and Jim was one of the movies that rose to the top um, through that cross-referencing. So that's how it ended up on the list. Um, And then, and then I worked through that list um, in the project. So, um, so it was a a bit of, for for most of the, for a lot of the movies in the, in the list, I had seen them before, uh, but there were a number of ones that I had never seen before. Um, and Jules and Jim was one of those oh, movies wow. that I had never seen. So it was kind of like a discovery for me when I got to it as well. Um, and the thing that, the thing that, uh, struck me about it and why, uh, why it's one of the, one of the films out of the 250 that has like, mo- really has most stuck with me, um, is it's so relentlessly inventive. Hmm. Um, it, there's like, you know, you're at, you're at this point in film history um, with the French New Wave, it, it's kind of like the French New Wave is the kind of like BCAD moment in cinema history. And the thing that the French New Wave filmmakers did is they were people, they were people who had been like shaped by movies. Um, they grew up with movies and they were the first generation that really grew up like with movies influencing who they were and how they saw the world. The, 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 the previous generation of filmmakers didn't. You know, they grew up making movies 
but not shaped my movies in the same way. And so when the French New Wave film critics came in and started making movies, they were just, and Truffaut especially, um, they were just just flooded. They're like their whole way of understanding the world was flooded with movies. And Jules and Jim is the word exuberant you used um, in your synopsis there is mm-hmm. completely accurate. It's like this huge exuberant celebration of all the things you can do with a camera, um, with an editing table, uh, with actors. Uh, it's just, it's just so relentlessly inventive. Um, I, it, it like, there's a, it kind of like, it, it, it a little annoys me that Godard used breathless for the title of his film. Um, that was so influential because this is a breathless movie if ever there was, ever there was one. Um, <laughs> like you just have to like hang on as soon as it starts. Mm. So it's that kind of exuberant inventiveness, like let's, let's buck convention um, at every opportunity and just run with it. That makes this so just a remarkable film. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 thing that uh, breathless. I, I like the that observation about breathless, Elijah, because watching this film, you know, obviously I don't speak French, um, so I you know I'm, I'm bound by the subtitles, and it's uh, takes a lot of you have to be on your toes just to keep up with the dialogue because these are characters they're they're full of ideas, they're they're full of emotions, and they talk about them a lot, and you just to keep up with what they're saying and kind of keep up with the emotional tenor of any given scene, you really have to just, you know, be completely tuned in to what Truffaut is doing. And I think that's kind of what I appreciated the most about watching it was just being surprised by it continually, Mm -hmm. kind of going into it expecting, oh, this is going to be a movie that's about, you know, being young and being swept up in the complexities of interpersonal relationships and there's a manic pixie dream girl and okay, I I know what kind of movie this is going to be. And as it went on, I found myself realizing, oh, this isn't what I what I was expecting it to be. And at first that put me off. I was I was thinking, where's this going? I don't know if I'm on board with this. And then mm-hmm. by the end I was just like I, I was back on board purely through the the style that Truffaut brings to bear on on this material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation about Andre Rublev, where Kevin admitted that like he had to sit with it for a little bit. Um, and I think this was a movie that I also had to sit with because it kind of knocked me back on my heels. Like there was a lot that I wasn't necessarily expecting um, to see from this movie. And I, I feel like a lot of it was seeds and tropes of things that I'm familiar with now, but that I could tell that Truffaut was doing probably for the first time, or if not for the first time, he was definitely on the cutting edge. So you mentioned, Kevin, the manic pixie dream girl character. There's a lot of this interesting, um, very engaging voiceover. And I'm usually allergic to voiceover, but this it really <laughs> worked for me in this here. Um, and a lot of the style very much reminded me of Wes Anderson in some ways mm-hmm. that I like wasn't fully expecting. So I think that was part of the ways, like one of the ways where this movie kind of caught me off guard was seeing like, oh, this is something that influenced this guy that I'm very familiar with. And I wasn't expecting to see these techniques being used in this particular way in a movie that was made 50 years before Wes Anderson started making his movies as well. Yeah, it's... um. You know, it's, it's, there's like two filmmakers who it's hard to imagine who they would be without this movie. And Mm -hmm. 
it's Martin Scorsese and Wes Anderson. Mm. Um, like there's there's so much of what Truffaut does here that's just all over their movies. You know, Scorsese talks about um, how the first like ten minutes or so of this movie that just launches you into it constantly changes. You can barely keep up. That he he loved that and thought, huh? I wonder if you can do that for an entire movie. And <laughs> that's where you get stuff like like Goodfellas and Casino and Wolf of Wall Street from. Um, which is kind of trying to maintain that energy for as long as you can. Um, and of course, uh, Wes Anderson, same thing, like the kind of characterization, the kind of relationships, the curious interplay between the narrator um, and the characters, all that kind of stuff is so Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Kevin, to your point about um, ha- having a hard time keeping up because you're <laughs> listening to the French, but you're like reading the, sub- reading the subtitles and you're trying to watch all that. This movie, I'm not joking, I have been um, trying to learn French since I first watched this movie hmm. because it annoys me that I have to read the subtitles <laughs> while watching it. I feel like I'm missing things the camera's doing, missing things the actors are doing because I'm having to read it. Um, I literally one day want to be able to watch this movie with no subtitles turned on. That's my whole goal in trying to learn French. <laughs> 100%. The, the, I think Jules and Jim, one thing that captures really well is the just one part one aspect of being young and kind of the the sense of possibility that the world has the the idea that uh it's it's we're we're able to go on adventures we're adults now but we're not uh weighed down by too many obligations and so there's so much opportunity for these characters to try different things, to uh, be romantically involved with lots of different people, to uh, spontaneously jump into a river just because <laughs> yeah. they, they're bored with the conversation. That's uh, and, and Truffaut just captures that so well, not just in the, you know, the situations, but just in, in the way that he uses editing. That and that that was part of where the frustration for watching the subtitles came from is because he does su- some very subtle things with the editing that if you're busy, you know, reading what's at the bottom of the screen, it's so easy to miss. Mm-hmm. I appreciated how he he uh, and and this is something that you see in Scorsese a lot too is the the use of the freeze frame, mm-hmm. where he he'll be filming these these characters. Often it's Moreau because she's just so has such a magnetic screen presence. And she'll be laughing or talking, and then he'll he'll Truffaut will freeze it on a particular image of her, you know, laughing or or saying something or having a certain expression, and that just captures really well the way that having strong experiences there. There's almost a way in which the certain glimpses of a moment can just you know be flash burned, seared into your memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, that's it's so hard to communicate that through dialogue, but you can communicate through image. And I think that's what Jules and Jim does so well. The freeze frames um, that happen here, you know, I've, I've kind of, I've, you know, as you notice them, because everything stylistic that happens in this movie stands out. Like the whole, the style is the story here. Um, mm-hmm. The, uh, I've thought a lot about those freeze frames, like why they show up when they do, like what, why that moment? Cause you know, he could, he can obviously, they can do whatever they want. That's the, kind of the whole point filmmaking wise they they do whatever they want whatever they want um but i feel like those freeze frames that's her happiest moment that's all of their happiest moment it's almost like mm-hmm. in retrospect if we could freeze one moment in our life together you know which is not always happy at all um we could freeze this one moment it would be this moment 
maybe that's kind of my theory watching it this time of why that moment freezes but yeah hmm. well well the the thing that's surprising to me about the about this movie though was that it kind of starts off being that way and you you expect it to maintain that tone throughout but what i think took this film from being kind of a diversion to something much richer was how in the second half when we see these characters try to make their way through domesticity and much more mature adult responsibilities, how the, the, the film takes on there, there's a certain bitterness that creeps into the, the carefree flavor of, of the film Mm -hmm. where you see that these characters, they still want to be the, the old carefree youth that they were, but they can't be that way anymore. And the, the disconnect there drives a lot of the, of the drama and it's still, propulsive but it's not as much pure fun anymore and and as yeah. i don't say, mean that as a criticism i mean that as like that's very intentional on truffaut's part and i thought it was so interesting how he was able to kind of walk that that wire mm-hmm. uh throughout with that tricky tone mm-hmm. i think there's a break like right in the middle obviously there's a huge break because there is world war one happening in well the and i think that's continent. very intentional too the world war one yeah. like just it's a psychic scar in Europe and mm-hmm. it's a psychic scar in this movie too. It's a loss of innocence. And I think that um, in some ways there are a lot of little mini breaks that happen throughout the course of this movie. They're, they don't necessarily arrest that momentum or that exuberance, but they do put a brief pause or almost a damper on it. So um, maybe those freeze frames could potentially be a moment where like you notice, oh, this is a something that's happening and I'm going to try to pause and recognize that forever. And that pause is a break in and of itself. But then there's also the break between Jules and Jim um, mm-hmm. when Jules begins to pursue Katrin. And he says, not this one. Like, we've shared everything mm-hmm. else. We've shared everybody else. But don't share this one woman with me. Like, I want her all to myself. That feels like a break as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then the moment where Katrin just kind of jumps into the sen because she's so bored with the conversation. <laughs> That's a break, too. And part of me wonders if all of the little miniature breaks in this movie are kind of like building up towards that loss of innocence, which is a big break in and of itself until finally like it it builds to a crescendo where nobody can really necessarily bear it anymore so that's my my theory about those those freeze frames i don't know if that's actually accurate or not but that's how i felt about them i like that i like that a lot the uh this is so much guys this is so much fun i've watched i've wanted to talk about this movie with <laughs> smart people since i first watched this thing so i'm loving this um the uh yeah so the um the all the little breaks so it's like there's a um like a buildup of of sadness in their life mm-hmm. over time and and brokenness and like a little those little bitty tiny breaks in their relationship and their breaks with the world it's kind of like they start out so young and idealistic and believe they can be they believe anything is possible they can break all conventions they can push it to the limit <laughs> you know mm-hmm. there's there is no limit it's not just pushing to the limit there is no limit and then slowly all the things in the world, all the things that they've tried to break free from kind of like crash down on them. That sounds really heavy when I say it that way. And this, I don't think this movie ever feels that heavy, you know? Um, but it is kind of what happens to them. And um, I don't know how much we want to talk about how it ends eventually. Um, oh, uh, we're, we as far as we're concerned, the, the watch list is is full on spoilers. You know, this movie's 60 okay. years old, so... There's been time. The statute of limitations is is passed at this point. Yes. So go go wild. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, okay then. Um, see, I hate to do that though. I just, I hate to spoil stuff. That was like <laughs> one thing when like writing, writing this come and see project is I, I knew I was going to be writing out movies that were like a hundred years old, <laughs> you know, like there's, you, you should think you could spoil any of this stuff, but I didn't want to spoil it for people. Cause a lot of these were new to me, you know, um, as I was going through it. So I tried to write this stuff in a way that was like a little bit of like entryway into the film. Once you watch it, you read it again and it like means more to you mm. um, and tried to walk that tightrope there. Um, but okay. But this is your show. So I'm going to spoil stuff as much as I want. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, there's, they're, they're, they're constantly fighting against convention um, and um, saying to forget convention or whatever. And then at, you know, at the very end, of course, um, they, a couple of them die. Um, and then the very last like line of the story is she wanted her ashes to be, to be spread on a mountain, but that was against the rules. So like she tried, like, especially Katrin tried so hard to never be tied down, always break free from convention, but in death, <laughs> she, she couldn't escape it. You know, Did, the rules still held her down. She's stuck I, I in a like pine that, box. Like, melancholy sadness, like finally kind of wins out in the end, you know? Um, at least in the case of Jim and, uh, Catherine, but yeah, I don't know. It did. There's a, but that is like, so that's so, I just think it's so French to do that. Like there's <laughs> all the French new wave films, even as they, um, as they were exuberant and pushed against things, they couldn't quite get away from the tragedy of everything. Mm. Um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Death is the ultimate convention. You can be as much of a free spirit as you want, but you can't you can't be so much of a rebel that you're going to cheat death. Death comes for everyone. And I, I think that's what sets this film above kind of just a standard, you know, oh the, the free spirits that were just crushed by the, you know, by the by the world's demands, which is, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with a story like that as such, but I think the wisdom of this film is that it does, you know, it it does valorize that kind of lust for life that the, these three characters have and, and their their determination to kind of forge their own path, but it also recognizes that you can't forge a new path all the time. There is a path that everyone has to take eventually. Hmm. And how hard you fight against that uh, might lead you to some, some, some dark or some sad places. You know, the, um, you know, the, the, their end, <laughs> Jim and uh, Catherine's end, they, you know, drive, she drives the car off the, the edge of the broken bridge mm -hmm. um, and they fall. And, you know, you could contrast that with how Ridley Scott um, in Thelma and Louise, Thelma and Louise mm -hmm. um, which you don't see the car fall, freeze frame. Like, Thelma and Louise live on because you never see the car fall. Hmm. But Truffaut shows the car <laughs> hitting the water. You, you, you see their caskets. They're definitely dead. Uh, you know, it's, it is a final you will die eventually kind of thing there. Yeah, it's funny. That's a very American thing, I think, to freeze the car <laughs> in the middle of the air and, and not allow it to fall. Like, I, I don't know. It feels like we're just trying to deny that that reality of death, even at the end of a movie. So, I mean, it, it is it. I when I, I watched this this movie with my wife and there were multiple times over the course of watching it where we, we kind of just like, oh, French, you know, like <laughs> it, it is, it is a very French movie in its attitudes, uh, you know, towards, towards marriage, towards sex, towards death. It's all just very, 
you it's it's inescapable and i appreciated you know i haven't seen very much Truffaut. i think i've seen 400 blows and this mm-hmm. so i mean i'm i'm not out at all well versed in in his work um but i've i've seen a fair number of other french new wave films but i think this one feels quintessentially french to me in a way that maybe those others haven't i, I don't know i thought that was interesting yeah for sure the what 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 I find so striking about his Frenchness is that you know it's based on a novel, um, and it is based on a time like like the way that they act feels very like baby boomer nineteen sixties like libertine let's do what we want kind of thing. But of course the story's set uh, back pre World War One mostly, and then right after you can um, definitely see how so how very... Bonnie and Clyde kind of grew out of this as well. Same mm-hmm. sort of thing like a yeah. flower children kind of story. Mm-hmm. But it's a period piece. Yep. Yeah. And I think that for me, that's like kind of like a reminder that like Ecclesiastes thing, that there's a time for everything, you know, like there's a time to be young and a time to butt convention and a time to all that. And then there's a time to die, you know, like, <laughs> it, it, that cycles through for every generation. You know, mm-hmm. um, we just we just see it a lot in the boomers because there were so many of them around the world. And they made so many movies. Um, but yeah. <laughs> that I mean, that's that's a good. Ob- I I hadn't made the the Ecclesiastes connection. Me neither. I guess. Yeah. And that's I I think that's a really good way lens to view this film through. Where there is there is a time to to love, and then there's a time to pull a gun on your lover because he doesn't <laughs> want to come back to you. Yeah. You know, there's a time for everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, uh, I, the, this has been a great conversation, Elijah. I'm so glad that you were able to come on the show and to explo- expose us to this this movie that neither of us had seen. Thanks so much for that. Mm-hmm. Um, like we mentioned earlier in the segment, this is one film that you talk about in uh, your projects that you've uh, titled Come and See. And uh, I was wondering if you would maybe talk a little bit about that so any listeners who are interested in checking that out um, can can find it, can learn more about it, and can can read it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, so, so come and see is a it's a collection of uh, brief devotions um, on the 250 greatest films uh, of all time. So, beginning from like the beginning of film history, and then all the way up to almost the current day. The the final film in the collection is uh, Parasite. Um, so it goes uh, from very first film to there, um, and it uh it grew out of a a question i had um i um you know i i'd written another book that was kind of like a kind of very basic intro to like um christian movie watching called how to talk to a movie it's like the the absolute basics of like just what is a movie how does it work how can you respond to it as a christian um and that's that's fun um it's a fun book but then i i i came to this question i was like okay but that's all like my response to what's going on um that's all like god meeting me at the movies as i watch movies and think about them and i wondered if i watched through the greatest films of all time however i decided what that list was would i see evidence of god at work in the lives of filmmakers um and in the development of the art form of cinema um was is that what i what i find that and so I had to decide, I had to figure out, okay, is that actually a valid question? Um, is there like theology to back that up that God might be, you know, uh, active in the lives of, of artists? 
um, regardless of their uh, religious affiliation. Um, what films would I watch if I should I watch if I do that? How do I come to that list? Um, yeah, things like that. Um, and so I, as I said before, I uh, cross-referenced a bunch of lists, came to a list of films. That was about 150 movies actually when I did that. Um, I looked at that list of movies and I thought, what's missing here? Because the problem with the canon is it tends to um, repeat the oversights of the past mm -hmm. um, again and again and again. And so what was missing were films made by black filmmakers and films made by women. So I went and I found more lists of films made by black filmmakers and films made by women. And I cross-referenced those and then integrated those um, films into the other list. And that's how I got to 250. Um, so it's a very comprehensive list. Um, and, uh, and then I just started watching through them and writing about them. And um, the whole time I thought, okay, uh, this would probably be a book because um, I write books and I edit books, probably be a book. And um, I, as I worked on it and kind of got nearly done with it, I, I thought there's a better way to interact with this material. And it would be, and the, the better way I think, uh, if someone wanted to go on this journey this way, would be week by week, starting at the beginning and working your way through. And so in my, in my real job, um, I, I work, I'm the content strategist and a marketing team at Fuller. And so I know how to build email programs and things like that. Um, and so I built an email program um, that people can sign up for. And then it, it delivers these devotions one at a time, week by week, all the way through from the beginning to the current day uh, through film history. Um, and it's free. Um, anyone can sign up for it. Um, I really hope people do. Um, I, uh, um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's also, uh, links to, so, so each week on Sunday mornings, you get, uh, one of the little, little devotions, like 400 words long, there's a little prayer attached to them. Um, and then there's a link to where you can uh, go to find where you can watch the film online. Uh, and then there is a, um, a link to a Slack, uh, group that I've created or if you want to talk about the movies with people, you can come there and chat with people um, in the in that Slack group. So, um, yeah, uh, that's that's come and see. Um, it probably will be a book eventually too, but if it's never a book, I like what it is now. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, I can I can definitely uh, confirm to our listeners. I haven't obviously you know signed up for it yet, um, but you were generous enough to share like your kind of your vision for it with us and, and the press kit that you've kind of put together for it. And I, I got to say, listeners, it sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm going to sign up for it myself. I'm looking forward to encountering films that I haven't had a chance to yet. Um, reading your thoughts, Elijah, on those, that it just sounds tremendous. Mm -hmm. And what an ambitious project too. So uh, definitely worth plugging to any listeners out there who kind of want to make that journey with you. So yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, I will say um, it, it's worth um, worth uh, kind of repeating this, that whenever you sign up, that following Sunday, you begin at the beginning of film history um, and work your way forward. It's not like you begin in the middle of anything. Like you'll start with the film, the very first films ever made, and then work your way forward. So if there's someone that you want to sign up with you um, to go along the journey with you, have them sign up the same week that you sign up so that they're getting the same emails that you're getting. Um, in the long run, it's probably not a big deal, but... People like to know that. Spoilers um, abound if you sign up off kilter with somebody else, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I wanted to um, also, uh, for um, Seeing and Believing's listeners, um, 
I want to do a little thing because it's fun. Um, uh, I have a Criterion like Blu-ray DVD combo of Jules and Jim um, that I want to like do a drawing for for your listeners. So um, if any of your listeners sign up at this at this URL, this is important at elijahdavidson.com slash seeing and believing sign up at that URL before the end of May and I'll put you in a drawing to win the Criterion Blu-ray of Jules and Jim um, so wonderful yeah. free giveaway you can't say no to free stuff that's that's just <laughs> the icing on the cake Elijah thanks so much for coming on and, and talking to us about the movie talking to us about your project mm-hmm. um, and yeah just sharing this time with us it's been a real treat mm-hmm. yep. it's been great thank you all thank you so much Listeners, and that'll do it for this week's episode. Next week, we've got a special one coming for you. Uh, We're going to be watching Footloose, 1984's uh, Kevin Bacon starring dance film. Uh, Going to be pairing that with a little indie horror film called We're All Going to the World's Fair. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sarah, I'm I'm very interested to know what your uh, tie-in for this is. Both of them have to do with teenagers changing the fabric of their reality through some form of communication. In uh, the case of We're All Going to the World's Fair, it's the internet. In the case of Footloose, it's through the medium of dance. Amazing. I can't wait. Uh, listeners, thanks for joining us this week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch Larson. Our guest this week was Elijah Davidson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.